Good afternoon, sports fans. My name is Jacob Nidig, joined in studio with my co-host, Zach Safran, and two very special guests here on the weekly rendition of the Sports Zoo. We're going to talk some basketball, both in the NBA and here on the farm. It's a dreary Wednesday afternoon, but that doesn't mean that the highlights inside the arena aren't very bright. Zach, how are we doing on this Wednesday afternoon? So wonderful, Jacob. Thank you for the lovely welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Whether you're listening live on 90.1 FM or online at kzsu.stanford.edu. Like Jacob said, a dreary day, but no reason to be upset because we have a fun one ahead of us. Two guests joining us to discuss the NBA before we jump in to Stanford Sports. Parker Kazowitz and Hamed Hekmat, welcome to the show. Hamed, why don't we start with you the type of guy, you know, you're the type of guy I want on my team if I'm playing pickup basketball. A student of the game shows through his play, and a Bay Area native, so why don't we go ahead and start off. I know you're you're rocking the town on that hoodie, a big Warriors fan. How is that team looking thus far? Uh, thanks for the very flattering introduction, Zach. I'd like to say that first and foremost. Um, I'd say... As a as a Dubs fan, we've definitely been spoiled in the past ten ish years. So this year, um, been a little bit of a slow start. Definitely some some rocky moments, some injuries here and there. But uh, all in all, a lot of exciting play. I love to see uh, Gary back in a Warriors uniform. That's love it, love it. One of the most exciting developments. I'm really love Dante Divincenzo. And what he's been doing for us. And just overall, I'm excited to hopefully make a run before the postseason, get a good seed going into the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. Share the sentiment as a Warriors fan. Right now, the Warriors 31-30 and 30 on the cusp of playoff contention at that seventh seed for the play-in. But I'll tell you, the Western Conference, such a tight one. I mean, from the four seed all the way down to the 13 seed, just a four-game difference. Send to your right is Parker Kazowitz, none other than my very own roommate. Not a Warriors fan, hailing from Nashville, but you're not a Grizzlies fan. You know, some might say you're a student of the game. I've heard you watch about three YouTube videos a day about basketball. Parker, what is the NBA landscape, you know, really showing to you this season? Uh, thank you, Zach. Um, just wanted to say you have a great radio voice. I've never heard it before, but I'm uh, honored to be in your presence. Also, thanks, Jacob and Hamed. Um, so actually, I, I already have watched one of my YouTube videos um, for the day already, actually. And um, it was about the state of offense versus defense in the NBA. Um, and it was talking about the Kings Clippers game from a few nights ago, where I think both teams almost dropped 165. It was something like 165, 164. Some absurd stat line. have been higher. Final score 176, oh. 175. It might have been regulation after one <laughs> overtime. Right, right, right. Um, but it was, yeah, I, I think the state of the NBA is honestly, in my lifetime, never been better. Um, I, I just as a student of the game, I thoroughly enjoy watching the offense defense uh, chess matches that are going on. And uh, I think this season has been awesome. Now, many people would actually counter that and say that today's NBA has the least amount of strategy. Guys aren't playing defense. Heck, they're barely even playing anymore. (laughs) What would you respond to people that would say that today's game is more about just letting people do whatever they want for 80% of today's game? Uh, 
personally, I don't know how many YouTube videos you watch a day. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was watching the dissection of the Kings Clippers game, um, and they were actually t- saying some very similar things that we know when you watch the NBA right now, it just looks like you know guys are chucking up threes or just like isoing, and there's not much going on in the actual offense. Um, or like giving up just easy fast break buckets where it looks like oh this like they're not even trying on defense they're not like paying attention but I think like when you compare today's NBA game to the state of the NBA in the past to, like today's NBA is so fast paced everyone is so athletic everyone is like very in tune like the coaches have been nailing them on like these like tiny intricacies in their playbook that I was watching one example of a play where it was someone, I think Nicholas Batum ended up with like a wide open three, like off of a made basket. And it was like, yeah, it just looks like no one even got back on defense. But it was because of these like slight intricacies in the fast break where like someone was like half a second late to realize that they needed to switch because someone was on the other side of the court and then someone had to help and there was like a pin down screen on the back. It was like all of this crazy stuff that when like, even I'm like when watching an NBA game, I'm like, man, that was like, what are they doing on defense? But there was like so many split second decisions that ended up in like a a corner three because everyone on offense was just so locked in and honestly yeah it was crazy I think it's hard to catch that in the game unless you slow it down on tape and like you're really locked in on looking at the film well despite how prolific the offenses are nowadays the saying goes defense wins championships I mean taking a look around the league I know a lot of debate and, and we'll definitely dive into that about who will be on top at the end of the season but right about now some of the th- the three teams I'm looking at, the Nuggets, the Bucks, and the Grizzlies. I can't forget the Celtics. No, I was about before. to say, yeah. no way you're <laughs> I'm not going to forget the, as, mu- as much as I dislike the Celtics. You know, those four teams, three of them are in the top four in defensive rating. So, obviously, we're seeing this trend towards an offense. But what about the defense? What isn't really being seen? Hamed. I'm not sure what you mean when you say what isn't really being seen, but I feel like you basically kind of answered that question yourself. Like, what's really setting apart the most elite teams? Like, as everyone's getting more athletic, like Parker was mentioning, everyone's getting more skilled, the game is getting more fast-paced. The reason why these teams are able to set themselves apart and be, like, 10-plus games ahead in their conferences is because they're able to get things together defensively, make sure their rotations are on point, their communication is there. It's uh, Chemistry makes a huge difference in terms of being able to um, know where and when to be. Uh, rosters have to be constructed the right way to be able to balance like switchability and depth and all these kinds of things. There's just so many different factors that go into it, but the teams that have been able to set themselves apart defensively are the ones that seem to be excelling. So even if offense has become the norm, defense is what... Uh, makes teams be exceptional, I guess, is how I'm seeing it. No, absolutely. And with today's game, so many players in multiple positions, you've got 6'10 guards, you've got centers that can shoot the three. What are the most important traits that individual defensive players need to prioritize, but also teams? You know, look at the looking at these high-quality defensive teams, what specifically are their personnel doing either physically or in terms of scheme that really sets them apart? 
Uh, I have a strong opinion on this one, and unfortunately, it's not really something you can work on. I think it was actually one of my flaws as a basketball player. <laughs> um, you know, I, for reference, I'm I'm just over six foot, but my wingspan is just not. No, he's underselling. That's I think he's at least six four. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> with the hair, one. with the hair, maybe. But um, you look at these top teams defensively. Um, Milwaukee, you have Brook Lopez, Giannis, both super tall huge wingspans you got Robert Williams on the Celtics you got Jaron Jackson Jr. on Memphis obviously Joel Embiid on Philadelphia and then you start going down the list of some of these top teams Cleveland Evan Mobley and Jared Allen all of these teams have interior rim protection but they also have really lanky wings and I think like one of the biggest things that makes defense like the one of the biggest nuances in how good a player is on defense is really like their wingspan to height ratio because when you have players like Kawhi with just frequently like long hands and long arms even if they're not a seven footer they're in the passing lanes they're bothering you on defense just like by nature of having a long wingspan and I think building around you know two-way guards two-way wings and even centers with just freakishly long wingspans is like a very underrated part of roster construction that really goes into building a team that can really be pesky on defense well let me bring up maybe somewhat of a counter Hamed you and I being Warriors fans our team winning the championship last season but other than Andrew Wiggins getting it done the perimeter I mean our only interior piece was Kavon Looney somewhat of an undersized, you know, not very long big man. How come with this discussion of length and size and interior presence, you think it was that the Warriors were able to finish out on top? That's a great question. I mean, it's a tough one. I guess it's like not necessarily a prerequisite. Like, it's not that you can't win without those things. Those things certainly don't hurt you. But uh, I think the Warriors had, uh, in seasons past, consistently been among the top defenses Mm. just in terms of uh, their ability to switch. And I think it's more so a system thing at that point. Like, having a strong backbone of your defense in terms of Draymond as, like, a leader and a communicator, making sure everyone is where they need to be at all times, and then having a few, like, energetic, explosive players like... Uh, like you said, Wiggins we had who would consistently be guarding the best player on the other mm-hmm. team and doing a decent job on offense. But uh, having a few of those guys, I guess, is enough to get you to compete against the length that we've been talking about. Absolutely. Not to mention Draymond Green, an all-around great defensive player. You also throw in GP2 and Otto Porter Jr. and Not a ton of height or lankiness, but definitely guys that are very quick, very agile, can switch in nearly any pick-and-roll scenario. Yeah, I mean, when you get to the playoffs especially, I mean, I think this is, like, another reason um, why people are resting so much in the regular season. When you get to the playoffs, the benches shrink so much. And so when you look at Golden State, yeah, they're not built around a bunch of two-way lanky wings like I would love to build a roster around, but their top few guys, Draymond and, like, Andrew Wiggins, are, like, all NBA-level defenders, very switchable. And then you have a couple pieces here and there, like Otto Porter and GP2. And, I mean, with the Warriors, just monstrous offense. That ended up being enough to carry them to a finals but I mean if you look at who they played in the playoffs you look at their first round Denver had an atrocious defense last not atrocious not a great defense <laughs> last year you look at Memphis Memphis every their average age was like 19 so they mm. they weren't there yet mm. Dallas I mean Dallas is honestly I don't know how they got there 
<laughs> even though I love Dallas. And then Boston. Honestly, I'm surprised they beat Boston because I, I'm really high on Boston. But really, that's like one team that they played with like a very decent defense and had playoff experience. Um, to be honest, I'm not super high on, on Golden State for the future because I don't think they have that lankiness and their defense is getting a little old. No, absolutely. And not to interrupt, Zach, but we're already seeing that struggle this year. The Warriors really, really struggling to defend this year. You look at points off turnovers, 29 out of 30th in the league. Transition defense really all over the place. Half-court defense even worse. For two Warriors fans in the studio, what's going wrong this season on the defensive end? You want me to take this one first, Zach? I'm, I'm happy to take it. I mean, I, I think it all boils down to the interior presence for sure. Like I said, we're down to Kavon Looney. We shipped off James Wiseman. You know, we've toyed with different pieces at different places, but size is such an integral part of the game, especially nowadays, and that versatility that Parker touched up on, I mean, we're beginning to lack it. I like that we have, you know, Dante DiVincenzo doing things out there. We hope Gary Payton gets healthy soon. Um but for instance, you know, most recent game I watched uh, in person, Kristaps Porzingis, of all people, was dominating us inside. I mean, last time Kristaps was dominating inside had to have been in Latvia, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Kristaps. That was definitely a low blow. But uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think not just interior presence defensively, but just like closing out possessions, being able to secure defensive rebounds. Uh, I remember very, very early on in the season, I haven't been able to watch as much recently, so I can't say if they've been able to uh, figure out like box-out rotations and be a little better about this, but they were giving up a lot of offensive rebounds, and those possessions add up over time. 100%. Speaking of the playoffs, as you mentioned earlier, don't want to dive into predictions too early, but we're just about at the three-quarters mark um, of the regular season what teams are you really looking at with the playoff hunt really coming to a close here? Obviously, like we mentioned, the West is tight, but that's not to say there isn't a potential for rotation in the East. Specifically, you know, looking at the West, I, I think it's fair to say Denver, Memphis, and the Kings, they are all locks for if not top three seeds, you know, very high seeding. However, we're looking at the Suns, the Clippers, the Mavericks, Warriors, Jazz, Timberwolves, Pelicans, even the Blazers and Lakers, and some could argue the Thunder. Um, it feels like I just listed the entire conference because that's, <laughs> that's the nature of what's happening here. I mean, so much to play for with a lot of movement, too, after the All-Star break, after the trade deadline of those teams in particular. Who are you most excited about? Who are you most worried about? Absolutely. I guess I can start first. And I think the Kings and the Grizzlies, although they're 2-3 and three in the West, I don't think they pose a formidable threat long-term in the playoffs. I think looking at some of those teams that made really noteworthy acquisitions right at the trade, line, trade deadline, I'm thinking of the Mavericks, the Suns. Those are teams that I think could really come together, specifically the Suns. You throw in Kevin Durant on an already stacked offensive team and that looks like a team that really anyone is going to struggle to to stop I don't know if they'll be able to gel together or play high quality enough defense but the Suns definitely to me the pretty obvious choice of someone that could really gel and make a run late into the postseason I don't think John Moran would be happy to hear what you just said but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I but, but he said they're fine in the west <laughs> 
Yeah, I think when you look at the West, to me, there's really two tiers of teams. Um, and it might not necessarily be divided by based on their actual records right now, but obviously Denver is a Tier 1 team. I think Memphis, even though, Jacob, you're a little low on them, I think they've proven to be a pretty good playoff team. Um, I think we're looking at Phoenix, obviously, um, especially with Kevin Durant now. And then I think I might sneak in the Clippers and Dallas, um, even though their records aren't as good this year, Dallas just getting Kyrie. I mean, the star power alone has to you know warrant them in that Tier 1, even with the roster holes around them, and then Paul George and Kawhi on the Clippers, and especially with how much they've been resting this year and not at full strength. <laughs> I think in the playoffs, they're definitely a Tier 1 team. Um, and then I think there's a Tier 2 of the West where – Man, I love Sacramento, and I hate to lump this into them, but I think you have Sacramento, Utah, Memphis. The Utah. I mean, th- these are teams that like might make the playoffs, and they they very well may. I mean, even Portland and even the Lakers. I mean, sure, we'll throw an OKC. Like, I think these are teams that are all battling for the playoffs, and Sacramento is definitely going to make the playoffs. I think, but I don't know where the Warriors fit on on that spectrum, but. I think there's a definitive two separate tiers of the West, and there's a few teams that have a chance to go far, and there's a few teams that are, that are definitely first-round exits. Absolutely. And so with if Steph gets healthy, are the Warriors in Tier 1 or Tier 2? Because right now that's the huge question, but we haven't even seen enough of this Warriors team this year to really know, in, in my opinion. So what, what would you say? If Steph, a healthy Steph, where are you putting them? Uh, probably tier one. I think just based on like their track record. Um, but definitely not my championship prediction. But I think if you put the Warriors, a healthy Warriors team against the Kings, I think ninety nine percent of the time they're winning. Ninety nine. I, I, Hamed, we've seen February clay in full form. Do you agree with what Parker's saying? We really have. I mean, I'm glad that Parker said that. I wasn't expecting him to, to be honest. So <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that he has some faith in the Warriors. Uh, I don't know about 99%. That might be exaggerating a little bit. but uh, Aaron Fox would definitely have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But I, I definitely agree that I think the Warriors would at least be close enough to Tier 1 that you could round them into that group uh, should they get their stuff together a little bit especially on the road i think that's been the biggest issue this Mm -hmm. year thus far um but besides that i i'm glad parker also mentioned Kawhi. can't remember the last time i've seen like 10 or so games in a row where Kawhi plays more than 30 minutes and i've seen a few like game recaps game highlights where he's just absolutely destroying everyone at will Mm-hmm. Now that he's back and healthy, so will that last? How well will they play together? And Russ seems to be fitting in well there too, which has been interesting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of weird to see. Um, it, he seems a lot happier there than he did on the Lakers, <laughs> I would say. Like, but uh, and that's a team that I'm kind of curious to see how it plays out. That we haven't touched upon as much. Um, I think they have potential to be really, really, really competitive moving forward. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Same stadium, different colors. Russell Westbrook with the Clippers. That leads me to my next question. I mean, the three teams that kind of take on a new look: the Clippers with Westbrook, the Mavericks with Kyrie, and the Suns with Durant. Who will be most impacted by the deadline, or, or by their moves that they made during the deadline? I mean, I'm thinking about Kyrie. That Luca Kyrie offense is so 
seemingly unstoppable, but the defense certainly a question mark. On the other end, the Suns, when are they going to get Kevin Durant? What will he look like in that offense? Um, and as you touched up on with Westbrook, was this debut a fluke, or has he really found his new home? Uh, I, I think for the Clippers with Russ and with Eric Gordon and Bones, um, those are all solid pieces, and I think they can thrive depending on how well they fit in, specifically talking about Russ and Bones. But I think that they made some good additions. I don't think their team construction is drastically different. Um, I think Dallas, obviously, with Kyrie, um, that's a whole new dimension to the offense, and I think they'll be pretty substantively changed. Um, and then, obviously, with the Suns, I think they're significantly impacted by the move. I'm not sure how much better they are. I think they are better for sure when you add Kevin Durant, a generational player, obviously. But, I mean, losing Mikhail and Cam Johnson are definitely uh, two very big losses. So I'm very curious to see. I think he's supposed to play tomorrow. So I'm very curious to see what happens. And I'm surprised you didn't mention the Lakers um, in that in that um, trade deadline slew because I think the Lakers are very drastically changed now. Um, and I was pretty low on the Lakers at the beginning of the season, but they made some really good moves, I think, and um, I'm very curious to see. I think they'll be a very different team and have been the last several games. Yeah, no, absolutely. And kind of bouncing off of that, out of those three teams that we've just touched on, which team do you think, as a GM, if you were in those shoes, you would have most agreed with, and which team do you think you would have maybe shied away from that trade? Uh, I think the Lakers probably made the most, like, like if the question was whether or not they were going to make any big moves, they didn't make any super groundbreaking moves, like no like superstars came in, but they really got a lot of roster pieces, as Parker mentioned, that I think they were missing. Um, I know our other friends that are Lakers fans are very excited about how the roster is looking and very hopeful for the last stretch of the season. So I think as a as a GM, I think the Lakers probably did the best job overall because the the other moves like they're very big and exciting, um, but it's just kind of unclear how they're going to pan out. I guess high risk, not necessarily. High, I mean, high reward, not necessarily high risk. Probably like medium risk because at the end of the day, like when you add a superstar, like they're they're going to do their thing. It can't mess things up too bad. But uh, I would be interesting to interested to see how uh, KD fits into the Suns' office offense, especially considering that they definitely sacrificed some depth to get him. Yeah, I I definitely applaud. Um, Phoenix and Dallas for making those moves I think it makes the NBA more exciting for sure so as a fan I was super happy to see it and I think they are objectively good moves I think they both probably needed a little bit more to get over the hump and be a true contender but definitely make me super nervous giving up so much draft compensation and and some young talented pieces Um, and I think the Lakers just made some objectively good moves Um, definitely wouldn't have made me as nervous We've spoken so much about the West, but we can't forget the other half of the league. We have two Celtics fans in the building. Celtics all season long, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown at the helm, just really driving the charge. But I feel like coming out of the All-Star break, somewhat of a storyline has been the Bucks. Obviously in Milwaukee, they don't get that media attention that perhaps their success in other markets would require. But even with Giannis sidelined, a lot of people have them, you know, at the top of the power rankings. They are at the top of the standings. Want to hear from the Celtics fans. Do you guys see any threats to uh, your crown in the East? Um, I think when you look at the objectively best teams in the East right now, I think it is Boston and then probably Milwaukee. Um, I mean, just after last year's playoffs, too. 
Um, it's hard. I, I would be hard pressed to bet against Boston, but I mean, I'm looking at the Eastern Conference standings right now. I think there's legitimately six. Mm, I'm not going to count the Knicks in there yet, but <laughs> six, almost seven teams that I would say are tier one teams. I mean, if I'm fa- like the Sixers, Joel Embiid makes them a tier one team. Obviously, the Sixers are scary in the playoffs, even though they haven't gone to the finals yet. Cleveland, I'm very high on Cleveland, especially after the Donovan Mitchell trade. Cleveland starting five, I think, might be the best in the league. Um, the Knicks, uh, the Knicks have been doing really well. I'm not going to put them up there yet. I guess Brooklyn. Actually, I forgot about the trades. Um, but if I'm, I don't want to face Miami in the playoffs either. I mean, after last year, I mean, we were like second, like an inch away from getting knocked out by Miami. And even though they haven't done as well this year in the regular season, I think the East has, you know, five or maybe even six like very quality teams that I wouldn't want to face in the playoffs as a Celtics fan. Absolutely. And, you know, the Celtics really flew under the radar on the trade deadline, added Muscala and added on a little bit of uh, salary in that deal, trading away Justin Jackson and a couple picks. But I think what's interesting about that and what's really interesting about their entire roster is that this team can do so many different things. You've got people that can play inside. You've got the outside shooting, obviously, of Tatum Brown and even someone I believe Malcolm Brogdon who might be even leading the league at three point percentage and so I think this team you know with all things considered is one that stacks up with the Bucks. I don't think there's enough room on either side to declare one a definitive winner over the other but I think that's what makes the league so fun right now is a seven game series between these two teams is going to be a heavy heavy battle with a lot of of physicality and a lot of offensive and defensive strategy that is really what the game needs right now. I guess as we're talking about these heavyweight battles, we might as well jump into it. Come June, we might as well go around the table. Who do you have winning the NBA championship? Obviously months away, anything could happen, but who is your 2023 NBA champion this year? I've got to go with the Celtics. It's boring, um, and I, I would like to make a more bold prediction. I will say shout-out to Cleveland. I think they're underrated even still. Um, shout-out to the Nuggets. I also think they're underrated even right now. Um, but I don't think you can – I can't bet against the Celtics. And I just want to give a shout-out to Derek White, who's been on an absolute tear for the past two weeks. Derek White honestly kind of disappeared in the finals last year for a, a long bit of time. And uh, I think if Derek White is playing like he is right now, um, that's a very underrated piece for the Celtics. So, yeah, I've got to go with the Celtics, but it's a little boring, I admit. I'm going to be even more boring by agreeing with Parker. Um, and I I would love to see the Dubs back in the finals. I don't want to get my hopes up, though. I don't think it's, it's likely. Um, last year was a great kind of underdog run, but I don't think that there's going to be a repeat of that. Uh, I also would be very excited to see the Nuggets make a make a deep run and see if the Joker can make a push for a for a championship ring but I do think the Celtics objectively are the most solid team on all fronts and probably have the highest chance of winning it all. Yeah. Before we just accept those two answers though, Parker, <laughs> who do you think poses the biggest risk to the Celtics is it you know the Bucks and maybe the Eastern Conference Finals? Who do you see them matching up with? In the finals, where do you think they could get tripped up if it were to to happen for the for this team? 
Yeah, I think definitely the Bucks in the East. Um, I'd be very nervous to see them play another seven-game series with the Bucks. Um, especially, you know, anything can happen in the playoffs with injuries and such. Um, I mean, the Bucks are so so talented at the at the top, um, and if Giannis is fully healthy, uh, it's very scary with Giannis. I don't know about the West. I'm curious to see if you guys, either of you pick a championship winner from the West or who you guys think is coming out of the West. I'm, I'm pretty high on Denver, but I, I don't know. I, I, do either of you guys think they have a shot at the championship, even with how good they are right now? I have an extreme dark horse pick for this question. I was going to go with the Suns. I think Kevin Durant added in. I know we haven't seen it, but this is a once-in-a-generation score that, Combined with some of those other pieces, obviously they could just absolutely not fit together, and and this statement looks ridiculous. But Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, a postseason Chris Paul, where he can go back to being a distributor and hit a few mid range. I think this team could be really, really dangerous. They stay healthy, they catch fire, and get the support of that that Phoenix crowd that has been so loud in some of these previous seasons and and i think they are a team that definitely should be on everyone's radar yeah i thought i was gonna sound crazy but <laughs> and I on the same page i have the suns i mean i love that that's why we're co-hosts exactly right i was gonna say like parker and hamed have known me for a long time i make some bold claims i thought that'd be one of them but i you know i i rest assured i feel good about this one um you know i think just in, in the west for our listeners out there you know how cynical i am about our stanford men's basketball team you should hear how i feel about the Denver Nuggets. I think they're frauds. Okay, they are not coming out of the West. I have the Phoenix Suns, um, and and I think for good reason. Okay, I'm not I'm not going to talk like Stephen A. Smith, just ramble on. But look, Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, a brand new owner, hungry and willing to do anything for an NBA title. Give me Phoenix or give me death. All right, let's talk about. This. <laughs> I'm curious to see what what Kevin Durant plays like tomorrow and how how he fits in, but. I mean, I'm looking at the new look Suns, and we have Chris Paul, who's almost in a retirement home. We have <laughs> oh man, oh man, he's bald, but he's got a lot of basketball left. He's got a lot of basketball left, but I mean, I can't think he's going to play more than like 25, 30 minutes a game, like comfortably. We got Kevin Durant, who's getting up there in age, easy money sniper. Okay, up there in age, and then we got Devin Booker, who's scared of being double teamed. Like out outside of those three, like. I, I, can you see? I mean, who who is the fourth guy? DeAndre? Ayton? Are you disrespecting the acquisition of TJ Warren? I mean, bubble TJ. Okay. I, I don't know. I just I think Mikael Bridges is like the the best three and D player in the league, and I think Cam Johnson is a very solid piece. And I think that's just a, that's a lot to give up. I don't. I agree. They have so much potential. They maybe have the highest ceiling in the league, but. I don't know. I think they might be the new the new Nets, where they have you mm. know the superstar trio, and then they just can't get the chemistry together. Yeah, I mean, I think we're forgetting the huge man inside, DeAndre Ayton. He's averaging 18 points a game this year. He's played in 53 of their games, averaging 30 minutes in those games. He's someone that inside is going to be able to set the tone defensively, and I think. When you add in someone like Kevin Durant, the pressure comes off of him offensively. He can rest a little bit more on that end and really work on for the rest of the season becoming that interior force that can not just take them 
from where they're at now, but push them to that to that final level. And yeah, I mean, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about what they lost. But I, I think those four players, with the right management and staying healthy, can score against anyone. And they play just a little bit of defense could match up with really any team. Yeah, I think the the biggest question mark for me, and and certainly what held me back a little bit, was that loss of Mikael Bridges. I think he was such a, you know, pivotal piece in their deep playoff run. But the man inside, the guy getting the big bucks. I love the fact that Aiton has that playoff experience under his belt now, and I think that we'll see leaps and bounds of improvement when it comes time. But Aiton, the youngin, in contrast to as Parker puts the retirement home sons. I'm curious. I want to throw this one out there. This is something that has come up in our NFL discussions before. You're an NBA GM. You can start with any player in the league. Who are you choosing to be the cornerstone of your franchise? I'm seeing some major surprise from Hamed. Do you you have anyone in particular? I mean, hey, they don't even have to be young, okay? You know, I think for me, even a year ago, I would, might have said LeBron. He's he's that no okay. Wait, what the, <laughs> I mean, certainly that's not my answer anymore. I guess I could get us started. Perhaps uh, this one may be disagreed with, but I love the guy. He's entertaining. I think that he has that personality of a superstar. Give me Anthony Edwards, okay? Oh, he knew. I, I love Ant, okay? I think he can really blossom into a team's go-to guy, especially in the biggest moments, and that's what, you know, a championship team requires. He's definitely one of the first people that came to mind for me, too. I think coming out of college, he looked like the most polished and well-rounded player and all, just ready to go right off the get-go. Not a lot of transition time for him, it seemed. Um, I mean, hmm. if you say age really isn't a factor, I've, I've always been a Steph Curry guy, but I know that that probably wouldn't be the most sensible choice uh, <laughs> as we approach, uh, I don't want to say the end of his career, but definitely the end of his prime um i think other people that come to mind i i love both luka and Jokic. like i think as like centerpieces for a franchise i think that they both like you said like personality wise they're both fun people that seem like relatively unproblematic but also just basketball wise they seem to make the people around them objectively better um, I think those are two of the people that would jump into my head, at least off the top. I made a surprised face just because I was stumped, because <laughs> I really wasn't sure where to take that question. It's a very good question, but I'm curious to see what Jacob and Parker might think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite players in the league is definitely Luka down in Dallas, but I think the way he plays the game, the way that you have to structure your entire team around him kind of makes me scared of, of taking him and so I think I might take Jason Tatum. I think his age, his ability to shoot the three but also go inside, and really just his creativity on offense is something that I think is really, really entertaining and also is obviously quite successful, not to mention durability, not really an issue with him as much as some of these other guys. He's someone that obviously rests has had some injury troubles, but gets it done on both ends of the floor, night in, night out. Yeah, I guess this is we are both Celtics fans. <laughs> yeah, looking back, but I had Jason Tatum pulled up on my laptop. Um, I mean, he he's 
maybe not 19 still, but he is only 24. Um, and I think what, what made me choose Jason Tatum over, over a Luka or over a Jokic um, or over some of those other young guys, even Anthony Edwards that I am pretty high on, um, is Jason Tatum is tall and lanky and a two-way defender. And he's very underrated on defense. I think he's really improved throughout his career and is maybe even all-NBA level maybe this year on, on defense. And, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to go with Jason Tatum as well. I'm curious really quickly, where would Victor Wimbignana be on, on this list? Because he was actually the first person that came to mind, even though he's not in the league right now for me. Yeah, no, I was going to question Zach whether he was allowed to be said. I, you know, everything has pointed to him being the number one overall pick thus far. I'd like to see him against some real competition and play 82 games. I'm one of the people that is very hesitant about someone with his size, his durability. So I think he definitely, you know, with maybe a little bit more film against high-quality competition could could be someone that I would have said. But just I don't know how transferable his skills will be and how durable he'll be in an 82-game season. Durability is a great point. Immediately made me think of Chet, um, and people were excited about him in summer league. And then he was kind of humbled very quickly. It seemed uh, it seems like it's really easy to be fragile when you're that high off the ground and not relatively um, built for that for that frame. I guess certainly a lot to be excited about, both past and present. We talked about the league today. We talked about the future players. We talked about the upcoming playoff race, ladies and gentlemen. Wanna. Extend our gratitude to Parker Kazowitz and Hamed Hekmat one more time for joining the show. You're listening to KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM Sports Zoo. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to KZSU Stanford, 90.1 FM. If you're listening live or online at kzsu.stanford.edu, we appreciate you wading through the break. My name is Zach Zaffron, joined by my co-host Jacob Neidig. You're listening to the Sports Zoo You just heard our two guests discuss what's at stake nowadays in the NBA, but we turn our attention now to the farm. Lots of action as spring sports get kicked off for Stanford, and we're well underway with our winter seasons. Jacob, what was the most exciting thing that you saw this week when it came to Stanford sports? Yeah, you know, I definitely think that a lot of attention has to be pointed to the diamonds, both the softball and baseball teams playing really well. But we'll have plenty of time to talk about them the rest of the year with their opening series just now being completed. Two teams that we won't have much longer, the basketball team, specifically the women's basketball team, looking to make a run now in the postseason. They're done with the regular season, finishing with the record of 27 and 4, 15 and 3 in conference play, but they ended on a sour note with a loss at number 8 Utah, 84 to 78. What are we thinking about the end of this season where as we've touched on so frequently, they played 5 of their last 6 opponents were ranked. They go 5 and 6 in that stretch. What are we thinking about this team right now, Zach? You know, it has been over two weeks since Stanford won a game by, won a regulation game, I should say, by more than five points. Um, 
it's it's tough. They're not peaking at the right moment. I mean, and and I say this week in and week out, a record of twenty seven and four. Yet I feel so critical about them because the expectation and the bar is so high. Um, losing to Utah, look. They win a share of the Pac-12 regular season title. It's nothing to be sad about, but certainly it was they held their own destiny whether or not they captured that sole title. Now moving into the postseason, I mean, I don't know if you can even say momentum is remotely on their side. It's reflected in the Pac-12 Women's Basketball All-Conference Awards. Alyssa Pilly of Utah winning player of the year. Haley Jones completely absent from all the awards. Cameron Brink, a well-deserved defensive player, uh, award, but you know, are players not doing their best? Needless not not to say they're not playing well. They absolutely are. I actually think Jones has been playing some of the best basketball of her career as of late. But this team really needs to return to that dominant presence that they once had. Um, of course, the Pac-12 tournament is a time in which they can demonstrate that, and the ultimate goal is March. You know, and if they can set the foot right. We, we might be talking about a different story in a couple weeks from now. No, absolutely. You know, Haley Jones, obviously one of the most talented players in the country. I have really think that this Stanford postseason run is going to be dependent on her play. You look at Cameron Brink. She has continued to play well. Hannah Jump also playing well. Haley Jones scoring the ball, at least, has struggled as of late. Has only been in double digits in two of the last five games. One of those games, she went one for eight from the field. She's really struggled to get the ball in the basket. And as one of this team's most dominant players, her offensive struggles often dictate the entire team's offensive struggles. And so I think that her ability to score, her ability to defend, her ability to distribute are going to be three things that we're going to really have to look out for in this postseason if this team wants to make a run really deep and and even hoist a national championship trophy at the end of the year. Certainly. I mean, before we can even talk about the tournament national championship, they got to take care of Pac-12 play. And as we've seen, I mean, it, it, it might be a different story than years past. Regular season losses to Utah, USC, and Washington... But an overtime bout with Colorado, two close matchups with UCLA. Who are you most worried about in the Pac-12 during this tournament? Yeah, I definitely think the answer has to be Utah, especially after what we just witnessed on February 25th, just three short days ago. This Utah team wasn't scared. They didn't back down. And even though they were losing at the end of the first quarter they battled back in the second quarter and took a lead into halftime and then from there were able to maintain it for the rest of the game and so I think this team in Utah and really what they can do some of those players and their ability to shoot the three ball poses a huge threat to the Cardinal because the Cardinal are so strong defensively especially inside but whenever you have a team that can shoot the three as well as Utah does, it, it kind of stretches the defense in a way that allows some of the strengths of the Cardinal defense to wear 
to be worn down a little bit. Exactly. The strength, obviously, being Cameron Brink, Stanford's now all-time leading blocker. But the perimeter, I mean, I don't know if they can really say they have one person that they can so, um, you know, trustedly rely on. Last year, it was Anna Wilson. They also had the whole twins this year. Gonna have to look for answers. Hannah Jump, uh, shout out to her. Pac-12 Scholar Athlete of the Year, the highest of honors when it comes to the mix of being a student and being an athlete. You know, traditionally thought of a shooter. I think she's made huge strides when it comes to the defensive end, but still don't know if I would, you know, feel comfortable her guarding some of the nation's top players. No, absolutely. And she really has been so superb in so many ways. She dropped over 20 points against Utah. And while she has changed her game, she's still shooting the ball at a ridiculous clip. 44% from the three-point line. And she's the only Cardinal with over 100 three-pointers attempted. But get this, Zach. Not only is she the only one with triple-digit three-point attempts, she's attempted 209 three-pointers. So she is shooting the ball at a very efficient pace, and she's shooting it a lot. But as you mentioned, she is not, while she's very quick, she's not the biggest. She's not the strongest. She plays with a lot of grit. But if you get a big guard, uh, a Haley Jones equivalent matched up against Hannah Jump, Hannah Jump does somewhat pose a risk defensively and, you know, might not necessarily have all the physical attributes to be able to, to guard someone that is out on the perimeter that can both box you down low or shoot the ball outside. Right. And that's on what a stat. I mean, the local kid getting it done. So fun to watch. Um, you know, I'm very much of the school of thought that when the postseason comes, your stars shine brightest. But I also think it's these moments in which the unlikeliest of heroes emerge. Um, my single greatest example I can think of, I want to say it was the 2017 men's national championship Dante DiVincenzo 31 points off the bench and then look at him now with a you know NBA career I I truly believe because of that performance bringing it back to the Stanford side who is going to be that x factor that dark horse contributor that hopefully allows Stanford to be playing deep into this postseason yeah you know I mean that is the million dollar question I think one person that we have to look at, though, is going to be Brooke Dimitri. She's someone that has played various moments in this season coming in. She's a sophomore, 6'3", someone that gets very little minutes, but lately has been able to make those minutes count. I think that she is someone that I look at whenever she comes off the bench. She's not necessarily going to score all that much, but who she guards, how she guards them, whether she boxes out and how she stretches the floor are going to be things that I really think Stanford is going to have to utilize because whenever it comes down to this postseason, they're going to be playing multiple games in a single weekend, very grueling stretch against high-quality physical teams. And so to me, it comes down to some of these role players who may only see 5, 10, 15 minutes a game, but those minutes getting the starters rest are going to be super important to keep up the intensity and ensure that not only are they maintaining the score where it's at, but 
could they potentially be a unit that gives Stanford the edge in these close games? 100%. And Dimitri's shown that ability to really turn it on at different moments. She has multiple games this season with five or more three-pointers. So we might see just an array of three-pointers from Dimitri in this postseason. For me, my dark horse, I would love for it to be Kiki Irioff. And the sophomore started the year so strong with six of her first seven games coming in double-digit scoring, but it's it's seldom that we even see her play that much as of late. But when she does, I mean, the production is there, the points are there, the rebounds are there. I'm just afraid without the playing time, it can't be her. So I'm, I'm, I have my eyes on Hannah Jump, the senior, the Pac-12 scholar-athlete. I, I think that she will be the X factor, and if she is on, the Stanford team will be firing on all cylinders. And so with that starting the Pac-12 tournament, which kicks off tomorrow with some of those opening round games, Stanford awaiting the winner of Washington and Oregon, the 8 and 9 seed. From there, if Stanford wins that, likely would face Arizona or UCLA. Where do you think Stanford could get tripped up at in this tournament? You know, winner of Oregon and Washington, I, I truly do expect them to handle business. But then we get to Arizona and UCLA. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, UCLA, a team that we had two really great fourth quarters against and were able to break away. But those first three quarters indicated that this is a UCLA team. I mean, that has been consistently top 15, top 10 throughout the year for good reason, able to really stick with us. Um, I would have my eyes on that matchup. That being said, Arizona, the four seed, UCLA, the five seed. So perhaps Arizona, you know, beats the Bruins, takes them out. And I think we match up much better against the Wildcats. But if we're able to handle that, I mean, on the other side of the bracket, obviously it's got to be Utah. The way they've been playing, the way they just played against us, they have been moving with full momentum um, and a team that, for Stanford's sake, hopefully gets knocked out early. No, absolutely. And we've talked about the trajectory of this team quite regularly. Utah, a team that is coming in red hot. But I'm curious, Zach, what do you think accounts for the differences in these two games? January 20th against, again, a very talented team here at Maple. Stanford wins against Utah by a score of 74 to 62. And then most recently on Saturday, traveling to Salt Lake City, Stanford loses 84 to 78. So what do you think, you know, changed in those two games? And what do you think Stanford needs to replicate in order to make sure that they end up on top if they were to face Utah in the Pac-12 tournament championship game? I mean, these are two highly disciplined teams among the best. I mean, right now, both top six in the country for good reason, as we've seen. It's it's less so about what you do, and it's more so about what you don't do. If they can, if you can play forty minutes of errorless basketball, you're going to win on top. But if you just make one slip, um, other teams going to make you pay. That first matchup when we played them at Maples Pavilion, it was so tight each and every quarter. But then a big run in the second quarter from Stanford just kind of gave them a couple possession lead all throughout and they held Utah right where they wanted to be um, but on the flip side this last weekend it was the same deal the other way 
neck and neck in the first quarter. Then Utah separates themselves, gives themselves a multiple possession lead, just barely keeping Stanford within arm's reach. But then they're so disciplined, they close the game out, keep them right where they want to be. It's about who can stay disciplined for the longest time. It's a game of runs. Can't give up a big run. You can't afford to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in that first matchup against Utah, Hannah Jump, Cameron Breek, and Haley Jones accounted for 63 points. Oh, man. Which is a huge, ridiculous total. You look at the second matchup, and it's nowhere near that. If my math holds me correctly, 47 points. So a very big drop-off there. And Hannah Jump, huge improvement there. Cameron Brink dropped a little bit, but Haley Jones, again, went from scoring 25 in that first matchup to only 9 in this previous matchup. And worst of all, only went to the free throw line three times, was one of three from the charity stripe. I think she's someone, if the Cardinal face Utah again, is going to have to use her physicality to get to the line, put other the opposing team in foul trouble. And I think that was one of the points from this most recent matchup that, that Stanford didn't necessarily expand on. Absolutely. Switching things over to the men's side, the Stanford men's basketball team still playing in their regular season. They play the Oregon schools this upcoming week, but two games behind them going one and one against the Washington schools, both home games, the this year's final home stand. A four-point loss to Washington State and an 11-point victory over Washington. Jacob, what did you see from this Stanford team that has been so volatile throughout the year? Yeah, I mean, again, first time against Washington, we lose 86-69. to And then most recently, we win 81-69, to nearly flipped the scores. And I think that's really been a testament to what this team has done, but... Also, it's a testament to the development of some really unique players. Max Reynald, number 42, has really come alive against Washington. He had 15 points, did so very efficiently, also added six rebounds. Harrison Ingram, 11 points, six boards, six assists, also added a block. And so I think this team has somewhat figured out its identity a little bit more and you know, has allowed some players to really step up. At the end of the day, though, you know, losing to Washington State just absolutely cannot be the norm. And this team continues to struggle at various points, hits a dry stretch. And then, you know, as we've talked on the entire year, just seemingly disappears at the most critical moment. So, you know, definitely love that win against Washington. Really happy for the seniors that they get to end their careers at Maples with a win, but this team continues to to kind of just be all over the place all the time, it seems like. Right. I mean, if I had to predict, I would have thought the opposite. I would have thought, you know, we come away with the win against Washington State and come up short against Washington. If you remember that first Washington State away game, kind of a heartbreaker. I think it was Reno who put up a three from the top of the key at the end of the game, and Brandon Angel had a shot to get the put back for the win, just came up short, but yeah, um, inconsistent, all over the place, sporadic, up and down, you name it. That's what this Stanford men's basketball team has been, but 
So they turn their attention to Oregon State on Thursday and then Oregon on Saturday. Do we have any predictions on how this road trip pans out? You know, that's that's a great point. I think ending the year on a high note definitely is what you'd like to do. And I think a high note in this case definitely could mean two wins. We beat both these teams earlier in the year. We're playing some of our, I don't know if I would call it our best basketball, but we're playing at a much higher level than we, we have at other points in the season. And some players have really come along. Brandon Angel performed really well against Washington State. Harrison Ingram seems to have carved out his role, even if I would like it to be significantly more. Uh, and so I think going to Oregon, two wins are on the table. Uh, and this team has a chance to be on a three-game win streak heading into the Pac-12 tournament. Um, when that happens, look out, folks. Look out. Oh, man, you never know <laughs> what you're going to get with a Stanford team. Um, just to close out the show, also want to give a shout-out to one of the top teams in the nation, your Stanford baseball team, now 5-2, and two, riding a three-game win streak, sweeping Rice in a weekend series. And it happened, folks. Eddie Park finally hitting his first career home run. Park, such a phenomenal batter, but managed to knock one out of the park this past weekend. That was, what a moment. Absolutely. Another huge shout-out to Anna Roberts. She won Pac-12 Newcomer of the Week for the women's gymnastics team after setting or matching career bests on all events, including all-around the gymnastics team with a really quality performance this past week. So huge shout out to the gymnasts getting it done in the, I don't actually know what the I, gymnasium, I, gymnasium <laughs> yeah, in the arena. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the sports zoo. My name is Zach Zaffron joined by my co-host Jacob Nidig.